1: We are
0: once again joined by a previous guest you hopefully heard from on an earlier episode, Ms. Emily Michael. And we will be jumping into kind of all things fad diets in animal nutrition because we always love talking about fad diets here with human nutrition, obviously, but since we've learned that there's... Also, so much information and nutrition misinformation in the veterinary world. We want to get a professional on here and hear their thoughts. So, Emily, if you kind of want to go over, I guess, what fad diets you would like to cover. And then we can really go into all those fun details behind each of them and what the research shows.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So, the big three fad diets, at least that I'm aware of, would be um, grain-free diets. That's probably the most common. um Raw diets, and then homemade diets. And homemade diets is sort of its own category, to be honest, because you can have a homemade grain-free diet, you can have homemade raw diet, you can have homemade whatever diet, but you kind of get the idea. <laughs> And yeah, kind of like with our last episode, when we were talking about sort of corporate pet food versus like boutique diets. It's another thing where probably two years ago I would have said like I, I probably would just said like fad diets are entirely wrong and never do them ever. And at this point, I it's it's a bit more nuanced than that. Um, so, so yeah, I guess let's get into it.
0: <laughs> yeah, we can start off with grain free. I feel like. I've heard that That one for sure. That sounds like a very fun one.
2: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, grain free is it's an interesting thing because, at least to my knowledge, and this isn't actually this isn't me like quoting a study or anything. This is just me, you know, living for the last twenty-four years. But like grain free is the first fad diet that I was really aware of in pets. And at the very least, it's the first one that like really took off that I'm aware of. And it kind of set the stage for other opportunities and sort of changed how marketing works in pet food um, for better or for worse. So to my knowledge, again, just anecdotally, grain-free really took off around the same time that grain-free human diets took off (laughs) Um, because I don't have an exact year, but like, I mean, you remember like sometime in the last decade or so when we started having more research into celiacs and at that point grain-free kind of became a fad And I'm not saying that like, you know, obviously a person with celiacs needs to have a grain free diet, of course, but all the people who would go grain free because they thought it would make them feel better or be less like lose weight, all the things you talked about them in another podcast, I know, (laughs) Um, but all of that was happening on the human side. And it also started happening on the animal side. And to be perfectly honest, I there was no reason. It was purely just like people jumping on the hype train and uh, people assuming that if this is a good thing for humans, which is questionable, but if this is a good thing for humans, then it must also be a good thing for dogs. Um, Which is interesting because you've taken two steps there. You've made the assumption that a celiac diet is good for a non-celiac human and now you're also assuming that dogs respond to diets in the same way that humans do and not, not true. <laughs> um, so yeah, I, I'm not exactly sure when, but sometime in the last decade we definitely saw this rise in grain free diets for dogs and for cats. And the biggest marketing tactics behind them was people saying that grains are bad, carbohydrates are bad. And they were saying that um, your animal is a carnivore. So therefore it shouldn't be eating grains which is interesting because technically cats are carnivores. Um, so we can get into that a little bit more in a moment, but they weren't entirely wrong. Um, like some of the things were truthful. A lot of them either weren't truthful or just too vague um, to really interpret accurately. Um, so when these grain-free diets first started getting popular, they, a lot of these companies just, they took out the grain sources which was a lot of corn, to be honest, and they replaced it with potatoes. <laughs> and um, some studies showed that maybe that wasn't the most nutritionally balanced option to replace. So like these days for a variety of reasons, probably cost is part of it too, to be honest. Now it's less of potatoes and more of like legumes, um, like chickpeas, beans, peas, that sort of thing. And rather, it, so it's still it's still a carbohydrate, which is interesting because one of the biggest claims is that you need to go on grain-free because carbs are bad. And they're literally just taking out the corn and putting a different carb. Um, But I mean, they are taking out the corn. So they're, they're doing one of the things that they're saying they're doing. Um, So some big names we mentioned last podcast, Rachel Ray, who is apparently a human nutritionist. I didn't know that. Um, She is, I think the biggest name in Grain Free, at least she was like the initial big one, like Rachel Ray Nutrish Grain Free was just everywhere for a while. And it still exists. It's still popular. But she was like, in my perspective, she was like the biggest name in Grain Free pet food when it really boomed. Then there's also Taste of the Wild is another big one. Um, Blue Buffalo. But also like some of the, I think all of the big pet food brands they also have grain-free lines, which is really interesting. And we can talk about the implications of that. But, like, it's not just the small-scale companies. It's also Hills has a grain-free. Think Royal Canaan is. Now I should have looked into this. But, like, and Purina does. They have these options. Um, and, and they're not, like, hiding them. They're advertising them. They're selling them in stores. So the first thing about this topic is well i guess there's two questions there's is this safe nutritionally for dogs and cats and then there's is it like is it better than having a grain diet because i think back when i was younger i would have said it's not safe and it's not better but these days i'm a bit more hesitant to be so like black and white on it um I have you guys heard of the the big scare
1: with grain free diets and heart disease in dogs? I've heard of it, but I really don't know much about it. So I'd love to hear more about it for sure. Absolutely. Krausey's like, no. Yeah, she's I like, know I don't know. Nothing about it. <laughs> okay. So
2: the biggest thing that happened, like, as long as the, the timeline of grain free events was like this massive boom, and all of a sudden they just sort of hit the markets. To me, it felt like overnight, but also. I was, I don't know, like a teenager at this point. So maybe I wasn't as aware of what was going on. Um, And then also seemingly overnight, there's this big thing about like grain-free diets are killing dogs and they are like making their hearts um, fail. So there was, there were, there was at least one study um, that was more definitive. And then I think a few like supplemental studies as well that were done by the FDA because veterinarians just across the United States noticed a trend that there seemed to be an increase in a heart disease called dilated cardiomyopathy, DCM. Um, and it's the, the heart gets, it dilates, it gets bigger. And then because it's bigger, it can't really pump as it's supposed to. Cause it kind of flubs around, um, cause there's now too much like stretched out surface area and the myocardiocytes can't pump properly. So that of course isn't good and it can lead to death. Um, And there was this increase. Veterinarians were noticing that it seemed like they were seeing more cases of DCM. And most of those cases were coming from dogs that were on a grain-free diet. We haven't really seen as much in cats. So we'll stick with dogs for right now. And so in 2018, the FDA investigated into this because they'd had enough reports from veterinarians and like veterinary councils. They did a full investigation on, it was something like 30 different pet foods that all had a grain-free diet. Um, And They didn't do a study of like, like when we think about studies, we're like, okay, you give a dog the food and you see if it gets heart disease. But that's not very ethical because we can't give a dog food that we think will kill it and (laughs) publish it. Um, So instead what they did was they basically just looked at, here are these breeds. They gathered a lot of data on animals that are eating, sorry, these brands of food. They gathered a lot of data on the animals that were eating those brands of food. And then they gathered a percentage of the animals that died due to DCM on those foods as compared to non-grain-free foods. So basically they were looking for an association and they did find an association that dogs who ate grain-free foods had a higher incidence of DCM that typically led to death. It's difficult though because basically Everybody just jumped on that. Um, the grain-free people didn't jump on it because that's bad. But everybody else jumped on it and said, look, grain-free is killing your dogs. But it's really difficult because there's a lot of variables there. It wasn't a controlled study because there's no way to do that controlled study ethically. Um, and there was a question of, okay, is it, are these dogs dying because they need grain and now they're not getting the grain so they're dying? Or are they dying because these diets are just Bad diets because they took out the grain and they replaced it with other things. Are the peas causing them to die? Or are peas fine, but they just need more peas or corn or whatever? Like, there's so many questions of what specifically causes that increased rate. And also, like I said, there's the one study and there's a few other smaller ones, but frankly, it's I I believe that the association's there, but there isn't actually that much research in general. So some people are even calling for like we need more studies. Um, which to my knowledge, I haven't heard of any more since then because people kind of just looked at that data and then just stopped. Um, so all these questions of, yeah, is it because you need those grains? Is it because the diet itself was bad? Could you have a diet that is grain free and is perfectly safe for your dog? And I think yes, I don't have the study to back me up because the study doesn't exist. Um, the study's never been attempted, but, It is true that um, from what we can see nutritionally, dogs should, in theory, be able to get the nutrition they need without corn. It's not like corn is magical. At the same time, there doesn't seem to be anything causing corn to be bad. Corn is a great protein source. It's a great non-meat protein source. So at the end of the day, it's a really difficult decision because I think there's the potential that a grain-free diet could harm your animal whether that be because there's something in that diet inherently that's wrong or also because traditionally the brands that make grain-free diets have less research supporting them and less research showing that they're safe. But also it's very possible that your dog could eat a grain-free diet all its life and be perfectly fine. And we have lots of anecdotal evidence of animals who eat grain-free diets and be perfectly fine. Um, So at the end of the day, it's sort of like my – Uh, conclusion about big pet food versus like the small brands of it might be perfectly fine, but there is a risk of harm there. So at the end of the day, for my personal pets, I would never put them on a grain free diet because I don't want to assume that potential risk. But if a dog comes into my clinic and he's like a happy, healthy dog, who's shown no clinical signs of like nutritional deficiencies or heart issues, like I'm okay with that. I will say that if an animal comes in coughing, um, and I hear that they have, that they're eating grain free, I'm going to be right on that heart right away. I'm going to look and see if they have DCM. Um, and it's definitely going to be something that I keep in mind when I'm diagnosing a patient just as a, this could potentially cause heart disease. Let's monitor that, but it's not something that we know one-to-one. Um, and the same thing goes for cats. Like I said, there really haven't been as many reported incidents in cats and, um, I think none, actually. There was a while ago some incidences where cats were having taurine deficiencies on grain-free diets, but then the companies added taurine and they seem fine now. Um, So same thing. Cats is probably even less of a risk, but I really don't see a reason to start it. Um, Corn is a perfectly fine nutrient. It's, It's a source of protein. Um, it's a carbohydrate that, you know, it provides energy. It has fiber in it, which is also important for regulating a diet in the GI system. So it's like, I feel like we're taking out a food because somebody said that it was good, but nobody actually has a reasoning behind it at the end of the day. So, yeah, I guess that's my, (laughs) that's my grain free in now 15
0: minutes. (laughs) Oh, cool. That was very informative. And I feel like you covered a lot of really good points. I did not know corn was a good source of protein for animals, I guess. I guess we're animals.
2: (laughs) Yeah, I honestly couldn't tell you. I I do not pretend to know human nutrition, so I'd imagine it's the same or similar, but I don't know definitively. But it is absolutely like it's a major protein source in our diets, which is crazy because people say people refer to corn as filler and it's not did just there's so many people saying it that at this point the misinformation is so rampant that everybody just sort of assumes they're like oh yeah corn is filler right yeah but it's it's very intentionally in those diets for a nutritional purpose and it's very necessary for balancing those diets
0: that's cool that's cool i did (laughs) not know that i'd i'd heard that about corn so i'm glad i know now i know now why it is there (laughs) (laughs)
2: Oh, the one other I meant to say the other thing is one of the arguments for grain free diets is that their dogs that people think their dogs are allergic to grains um, because, you know, celiac disease exists in humans. And people kind of assume that there is a, a counterpart in animals And I just want to throw out there that, like, grain allergies in animals are incredibly rare and they do happen Um that's the reason why some of the big companies have grain-free diets. They say it's for pets who are actually allergic to grains. In reality, I definitely think it's a marketing ploy. I think that they do want money at the end of the day, and that's why they're doing it. But that's a whole different discussion. Um, But yeah, obviously, if your animal is truly allergic to grain and has undergone a food trial showing that it actually is allergic to grain and isn't just like an environmental allergy, which is 99% of allergies, then yes, please put your dog in a grain-free diet. Um, it's just incredibly rare. And because it's more and more common in people, it seems as we learn more about it. People tend to assume that their dogs and cats are the same when in reality, it's, it's a very different process.
1: So many common themes with like human nutrition too. It's, it's so crazy. I didn't realize there was this much (laughs) like, what's the word like beef in (laughs) animal science too it's so crazy to me absolutely okay well let's break down those other diets as well so that was a really really good background on the grain free I think you're right it's kind of the one I hear the most so I think that's like one of the most popular um I'll leave it up to you do you want to go into the homemade or into the raw diet next
2: um Let's talk homemade just because it'll probably be pretty short and sweet, to be honest. And then raw can can end it up with raw. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, homemade diets is a very broad category. And it's a little difficult to tackle, but I think we can just because it can mean literally anything. Um, I've had people who tell me that their diet is a homemade diet. And that means that whatever they eat, they just give it to their dog as well not even like scraps. I've met people who will literally, they will make themselves like a roasted chicken with asparagus and like carrots. And then they will also make a small plate of that for their dog and give it to them, which is not good because A, if you aren't aware of every single food that isn't, isn't safe for your animal, like toxicity issues, B, you're probably not giving them a nutrition, like a nutritionally balanced diet and C, just like I don't know, this is harsh, but like, why would you, why would you waste your time doing (laughs) that? I mean, that's up to you, I guess. Um, But I've also like some people for homemade diets, they are like, they make them homemade because they want them to be grain free, or they make them homemade because they want them to be raw, um, which we'll talk about next. So it can mean a million things, whether it means I feed my dog McDonald's every day, or I make my dog a five-star meal every day, or I buy fresh meat from a butcher shop and like grind it for my dog every day. There's so many options and there's definitely pros and cons um, from a nutritional standpoint, but also just from a like feasibility standpoint, because well, I guess I'll, we'll start with pros. Um, homemade diets in theory are the only way that you can hundred percent know exactly what your pet is eating. And some people just want that and that's fair. And some people really need that if their animal has multiple concurrent diseases, um, if they have food allergies, which again are really rare, but like they, they can happen, they absolutely can. Um, or just any personal reason that you want that, this is the only way you can really know exactly what your animal's getting. And you can micromanage for specific like health problems, if they have specific uh, deficiencies, something like that. Um, Also, some people will do it because certain animals, especially older ones who might have like a chronic disease process, they just don't want to eat. And sometimes homemade meals that involve more like traditionally human foods are really the only way to get them to eat. You know, if that's what you have to do, I understand that. Um, A lot of people like them for more superficial reasons as well. They just feel like they look better. They feel like it's more natural. Um... And they want their animal to be their child, which I understand because my cats are my children, but um, they don't, like we were saying in the previous podcast, they just don't feel good about giving their animal something that doesn't look appetizing to a human, Um, which again, to each their own. I I think that is a valid reason to do it. If, If you just want your pet to have food that looks like your food, I think you're projecting a little bit, but I think it's valid. Um, some people honestly just want bragging rights. <laughs> I put that in my notes here because, um, you definitely get people who do it like for Instagram, but that's, I think a bit less common nowadays, which is good. And then some people will do it because they want their pet to have a diet that isn't commercially available. They want their cat to be a vegan or something like that, which those ones I'm very staunchly opposed to. Typically, if a diet doesn't exist on the market, it's because it's not safe um, and it's not healthy for your animal to eat that way. So if you're if you're making your cat a vegan, don't. It is a carnivore. <laughs> um, amazing, thank you. Even if you're making your dog a vegan, they're an omnivore. So they also need meat. So please stop that. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I mean, like there are there are sensible reasons to do homemade. There are people who do it just because that is what they want and that's valid. There's a lot of cons, though, and a lot of them are more of just feasibility more so than nutritionality, though that's part of it as well. I think I just made up a word, nutritionality, but anyways. (laughs) We make up words (laughs) on here all
0: the time, so it's okay.
2: So, I mean, from a nutrition standpoint, it is incredibly difficult to accurately balance a homemade diet, Um, because even, like, commercially made diets will get recalls because they aren't balanced properly, and they're causing deficiencies in animals, they're causing side effects, like, no offense to however good you are with Googling, but if a large-scale company that's working with a team of nutritionists can make mistakes, like, you absolutely can make mistakes as well, even if you have the best intentions. So that's the first issue. It's just, it's it's very difficult. Some people assume that it's as easy as, like, okay, here is a piece of chicken, and here's some vegetables, and here is, like, a, I don't know, some sort of, like, supplemental lysine powder or something I found at the store. And it is so easy to accidentally cause a deficiency or like over supplement, like over provide um, nutrients to your pets. And both can be equally, equally bad. The bright side is um, your veterinarian may be able to help you with this. It really depends because it is, it's a massive undertaking to do this, but also veterinary nutritionists exist. And they are the ones who, if you want to do a homemade diet and you want to do it properly, absolutely do whatever you can to consult with a veterinary nutritionist because they are really the the best and maybe the only people qualified to help you do that. Um, General practitioners, like I said, we get education in nutrition, but it's not nearly as complex and like as well flushed out as veterinary nutritionists who spend an extra like four years of their lives studying this. So they're the ones to go to, not us. Um, And then after that, it's really just feasibility, which for some people they do not care. Um, Some people are retired or they're stay at home and like more power to them. They have the time for this fantastic, but your average person, it's just sort of an unfortunate reality. They get this idea, they want to make a homemade diet and then they, they do it for like two weeks and then they just don't have the time to like constantly be making small batch meals, constantly be like grinding together ingredients um, and they start cutting corners. They start like making, batches that are too large and keeping them for too long to save time, but then they end up providing food that isn't fresh. Um, They end up like supplementing high quality meats with lower grade meats because it was too expensive, things like that. And like all of these are things that you can, like, if you are dedicated, you absolutely can do these things. At the end of the day though, I think in 99.9% of like animals, a homemade diet isn't a requirement and so you can save yourself so much time, so much labor, so much cost, um, minimize the risk of like food poisoning yourself or your other animal or your animal if you're using raw materials just by purchasing an over-the-counter diet. Um, so it's, it's interesting because, again, I don't fault people for doing it, but anytime I do see a client who has a homemade diet, I definitely pay closer attention to their pet To, you know, if they appear malnourished in any way, I am more likely to recommend blood work uh, just spontaneously, just to make sure that everything looks okay in there and that they don't have a like calcium deficiency or like, I don't know, uh, increased sodium because you put too much salt in there, that sort of thing, because it's just so easy to get wrong and it can be very dangerous when you do. Um, And I think also, just as a last point, it really harkens back, I think I said last episode that. Most animals will eat the same diet over and over and over for all their life. Um, Homemade diets, a lot of people, when they do them, they'll do the same diet or the same rotation of like meats or something the whole time, which makes sense. That's the easiest way to do it and be consistent. But if you formulated it wrong, that is how you get deficiencies and how you get malnourished animals.
0: We appreciate that great rundown of the pros and cons of homemade animal
1: diets I'm blown away by all the controversy this is so interesting to me I just didn't realize there was so much to this I mean obviously I know it's not as simple as just like give your pet food but like there's just so much to it it's crazy my mind is like so blown right now (laughs)
2: it's a big world and people get very heated certain owners will get very heated if you say
1: I can imagine
0: (laughs) sorry um Cool. Um, I think this is the diet I'm most excited to hear about.
2: The raw diet. Our last
0: one is the raw diet. And I am very excited to hear about this because I this is, as being not a pet owner, this is the (laughs) diet I have heard the most about. Because I've always heard your pet's a wild animal so it should eat (laughs) a raw diet. So I am very excited.
1: Yeah, me too. Yeah. Me too.
2: No, that's good to know too, though that maybe the raw diet's more popular now than the green free diet. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so yeah, no, uh, raw diets. They yeah, another big source of controversy and another one that I mean, I'll, I can skip to the end just quickly. I think they can be done right. I think they frequently are not done right and they frequently pose more risks than gain. Um, So yeah, a raw diet, depending on who you ask, can come in just countless different forms because you have all the way from like your person who goes to the butcher shop and buys like a T-bone steak and just gives it to his dog versus there are many commercial companies where you can purchase um, either You can purchase like actual fresh raw meats or also you can purchase like freeze dried meats. You can purchase these little like pucks. I've seen one of my clients that I worked with, um, they feed their dogs. These little like they look like hockey pucks and it's just compressed freeze dried meat um, and it stays. uh, It doesn't spoil because it's freeze dried that's the main thing. And there's like a couple like supplements like mixed in there as well. So it's really all over the spectrum of what does it even mean? And whenever you have a client who says they feed raw, you always have to kind of ask them because you have to know like, okay, does that mean only meat? Does that mean raw meat, but also vegetables? Are there bones in there? Is it like organ versus is it just like, like a T-bone steak? And it's all entirely different. Um, And they, they affect the animal differently as well. So I feel like the general vibe of raw meat is like your dog is a wolf and he needs to get back to his ancestors and he needs to eat this raw meat and he's super cool and like metal and like you're super cool because you're feeding your dog this like crazy you're feeding your wolf food. Yeah. <laughs> Which I don't know if you've ever seen a pug, but like your dog is not a wolf. Like I don't know why people can look- <laughs> say that. And even even like big, scary German shepherds that you're like, "Okay, it physically looks like a wolf. um we have had so many generations of domestication that at this point it's like very you you can't argue your dog is not a wolf, and even if he somewhat was one like generations ago, his g i tract no longer reflects that, and his nutritional needs no longer reflect that, and also, even if he was a wolf, wolves will like I don't know, they live, like, three years or something, and then they die, like, and they get, like, parasites, and, like, wolves aren't even really, I, I wouldn't want my animal to have the life of a wolf, because it's they get the nutritional <laughs> and they starve, and, yeah, it's not a standard I want to aspire to. <laughs> Maybe a wolf in a zoo, I guess, I don't know. <laughs> so, the pros that people will claim for raw raw diets, there are claims that it will increase your dog's lifespan, that they will just generally be healthier, less likely to develop any sort of disease, depending on who you ask, and that their GI system will digest the raw meats better because it hasn't been processed. So therefore, they will have like less GI distress over the course of their lifetime. Um, The biggest like claims that they make to support this is that Cooking can like alter and destroy natural enzymes, and it changes the digestibility of what they're eating. The big issue on that is that there really aren't any studies to support any of these claims. I'm not aware of any studies that deny these claims either. But the fact of the matter is, just there just aren't peer reviewed studies at this time. Um, It's mostly just testimonials and people saying like, "Hi." My dog lived to be 17 and he eats raw and it must be because of the food, but he might have lived that long anyways. Maybe not. Like I said, I'm not aware of any studies that are against it either, but like there really is no actual conclusive evidence. Um, There have been a few studies that focused only on the digestibility aspect. So not about the health aspect, not about like improved lifespan or anything like that. Um, But it specifically looked at raw meat versus kibble diets. And it showed that like, raw meat were slightly more digestible than cooked meat in the form of kibble. Um, But it didn't look at like other uncooked foods. And most raw diets also include other uncooked foods like grains and starches and whatnot. So like, it wasn't looking at what would be even normal raw meat diet in the first place. So again, it kind of depends. Everybody does it differently. So it's possible that they're slightly more digestible. However, cooked meat is digestible. It's taking something that is digestible and making it slightly more digestible. And either way, the average dog won't have GI distress with either of them. So do with that what you will. (laughs) Um, Meanwhile, There's a lot of risks. uh, That's what it always comes back to, honestly, is people are taking unnecessary risks because something sounds like it's good. It sounds like it's exciting and new and fun. Um, The biggest ones always come back to nutritional imbalances. And this is partially because a lot of the ways that people source raw meat diets are a little bit questionable. Um, If you have a person who's just going to the butcher shop and purchasing meat and giving it to their dog, they probably haven't looked into actually balancing that diet. And the dog is probably very deficient in a lot of like, you know, macronutrients that aren't present in a T-bone steak. Um, Some owners do do their research and they do supplement things well. So it's like, you can surpass that, but generally, if you're purely just buying meat Even if you're adding in various organ meats, it's just really common that you'll have nutritional deficiencies because you're not including other things like carbs that dogs do need because they're omnivores. Cats technically, again, are carnivores, so there's a little bit more leeway there, but it's still very easy to, like, micronutrients like taurine that are super important, you need to supplement them or else they're not going to get enough of it, and not every owner does. Um, The other thing, again, back to, like, these Sort of lesser known companies, these small pet food companies, a lot of the raw diets, to my knowledge, all of the raw diets are coming from smaller pet foods. I'm not aware of Purina, Royal Canyon, or Hills doing raw diets. I could be wrong on that. Um, But the ones that I am aware of making these raw food diets, they're all smaller places that don't have the resources to do peer reviewed studies on their foods. They don't necessarily have veterinary nutritionists. And because of that, again, it doesn't mean that the food is inherently harmful, but it also means that I don't have, I can't point to a study and say, this says it's safe. I just don't know. Um, in addition to that, there's just a lot of risks with the fact that you're handling raw meat. Um, all of the risks that would just be inherent as if you were, you know, just picking up chicken in your kitchen. Um, Some of them are mitigated by these like freeze-dried diets, but even those, there's still raw meat that's in there freeze-dried, so there's still some forms of bacteria. Um, So we see a lot of cases where people will feed their dogs these raw meat diets and they'll get E. coli poisoning or salmonella poisoning. Um, And typically it doesn't impact their dogs as much, though you can see dogs with like GI poisoning because of like bacteria on the raw meat, especially if it's not handled properly. But what usually happens is the owners are really good about wearing gloves, and they wear gloves and they put down the food, and their dog eats the food, and then the dog licks them, or like licks their old grandma who's visiting, or like licks their child in the mouth because it's a toddler, and crowds, <laughs> you look very distressed. Um, but people don't think about I, it.
0: Because, like, <laughs> just a side note, I, I get freaked out when dogs' mouths are in other people's mouths
2: yeah really that's a personal a
0: hygiene yeah. I
1: don't I'm not a big fan either to be honest <laughs> don't ask for it but it happens when you, have, when you have a dog you know yeah so yeah no so that's the bigger
2: thing is like people I think in general are aware that you know it's raw meat and raw meat usually is bacteria so I should be careful but then they sort of just assume that the safety portion is done once they have put the food down and they forget the fact that your dog doesn't wash his mouth after eating and he doesn't wash his paws after eating. And essentially they're just a vector now for any sort of bacteria that might have been present on that raw meat, Um, which ideally there isn't any, but there absolutely could be. Um, Another one is raw diets, again, depending on where you're sourcing it from some of them include bones um, and especially people who make their own homemade, they're just purchasing these meats and um they'll have like a rib in there or something like that a lot of them intentionally add bones because they want the bone marrow in there but the problem is in general it's not really recommended to give your dog bones even though like half of the treat companies out there want you to um, because dogs will choke they will break their teeth um if they swallow little bits of like bone shard they can perforate their stomach um and that's another, just a big one that it's not even related to the nutritional contents of the food, but just in general, it's an inherent risk in having these raw sources that haven't been processed, um, that that have their accessory portions. So at this point, like I said, there just really isn't documentation that it's better. And there's a lot of reasons why it might not be. And because of that, I kind of take the same approach as a grain-free even more so, because grain free in some rare cases, you might actually have a leg to stand on because your pet's allergic in raw diets, there is no, in my opinion sensible reason to cut out like the cooking process because we have all these studies showing that they can digest their cooked food, and you're adding in risks for little to no reward um, other than the sort of concept of being more natural um. Yeah, and I think that's that's my big take on it. I know Hannah, you mentioned that you have friends, maybe, or you know people who are who use raw diets.
1: Is there anything else you've heard about them, or any questions you might have? No, that was that was perfect. That answered all my questions. Um, yeah, I just feel like like you've really said a few times that like people who do it, they can do it well. There's definitely a right way to do it, but I think a lot of times it is, especially like on Facebook groups and that kind of thing more so just to like seem like a better dog parent because they are giving them real food, if you will. And so I have been kind of jaded, I guess. I truly didn't know, like, am I doing the wrong thing as a dog mom? So it's been nice to hear that I'm not a bad dog mom for giving my dog like actual kibble. So that was, it's been good to hear all this. I'm loving it. Yeah. And I, at the end of the
2: day, I like to tell people, like, if you put your pet's food down, like, do they eat it? And do they seem happy while they eat it? Cause like my cat's food is, it's literally called a loaf. It is renal loaf. (laughs) It's just this little can and it looks terrible, but he is like so happy. And he gets so excited whenever I pull it out of the fridge because they don't care about the same things we do. They, to an extent, care about how it tastes. Some of them, honestly, I swear, just care about the fact that they're eating. Like labs don't even (laughs) eat their food before they swallow it. So it's a really interesting mix of people putting their own emotions onto their dogs and, like, really just projecting um, and making assumptions.
1: Yeah, which I totally get. Like, I obviously would do anything for my dog. So I kind of was, like, having those feelings, like, am I doing the wrong thing? But you're so right. Like, we give Finn, we give him Hills. We do Hills, hills Science Diet. And he he loves it. Like, he just, it's food. He wants to just be eating <laughs> food. So he's totally cool with having that every day. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. Oh, and that actually reminds me, the other thing with some of these raw and grain-free and homemade, I would say, I think all three of them, is some animals, we kind of mentioned, like, some animals have very specific dietary needs. And, like, my cat has some early kidney disease, so he's on a specific renal diet. Um, I suppose with homemade, I could could replicate that with a homemade diet if I really wanted to and took the time. It would be a lot, very intensive, but I could. But, like, to my knowledge, there is no therapeutic renal diet that is also grain-free. And there is no therapeutic renal diet that is also raw. So that's the other thing is, like, in theory, you can do them right, but really only on a healthy animal. The second that they have a secondary issue going on there, it's it becomes far more complicated.
0: That's a very good point to mention, especially once you, like, have to, like, be able to do the diet correctly, once you have that figured out, like... I always think with humans there's like when we were in clinicals, every human had at least three chronic conditions and I was like if you add that to like I don't know how susceptible animals are to all these like chronic conditions, but when you start adding those on, it definitely makes it much more challenging to make the already challenging diet you've taken on before and adapting that to Best, I guess, nourish your animal. Yeah. That was very informative. I learned a lot about fad diets in animals. I'm sure there's a million more.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Those are the big ones, at least. But yeah. Yes.
0: Cool. Emily, do you have anything you'd like to know? Or, like, I guess, like any final statements about fad diets in veterinary medicine?
2: Um, yeah, I guess just generally, like, to the pet owners out there, it's always good to be informed about diets, but ultimately, um, trust your veterinarian. And if you don't trust your veterinarian for some reason, like find a different one that you do trust, I guess, because I think we all like to, I don't know, we all want the best for our pets. So sometimes it feels like you have to do the research yourself and that's perfectly fine. But most veterinarians have access to more resource and also just a broader background in these sorts of things. Um, So please involve them in the conversation and please be open to a discussion. And hopefully they will also be open to a discussion because at the end of the day, like, you know, diet, isn't the hill I die on with most patients, but it is really important. And if more people involve their veterinarians in that decision, I think a lot of animals would just be healthier overall. At the very least, I think there'd be fewer overweight animals, to be honest. Like even, even animals on bad diets, they can still live pretty okay lives, pretty happy lives, but it can cause a lot of just chronic issues, a lot of overweight issues and things like that. And we don't want that in vet med.
0: <laughs> well, on that note, we get to go to the fun part of the episode, and you get to do another bonus question oh. with us. <laughs> <laughs> and as you know, you get to go first, because you are right. our guest. So this isn't really, I guess, I don't know how much of a debate question this is, but we could make it a debatable question by saying which one we believe is best. But the question is, what is your favorite type of chip? And I guess you can you can go about this like sharing your favorite type, or if you would like to place an argument behind why your chip favorite chip is the best chip, either one works.
2: This is very difficult because I don't think I have a favorite type of chip. <laughs> it's like the ones that I jump between the most are Doritos and then lace sour cream and onion chips um but they're two very different chips, and I don't know which one I'd prefer. It really depends on my mood. Um, but those are those are probably my two favorites. So if I'm allowed to say two favorites, if I'm looking for like a lighter chip, I don't know if that exists, but like a lighter chip would be the sour cream and onion, and then I feel like Doritos are heavier.
1: <laughs> well, I get you that. just did what I do for every episode. I never have a direct answer, so don't feel bad about that. That's how <laughs> Wait, it goes okay. every week for me. I changed my mind. It's a okay. Chocolate. I nice do that too, so. Chip. Wait, sorry, you what say? was What'd that? You say? The chocolate chip. <laughs> those are so good. Have you had those, Emily? Crowsey? Oh, no, I just mean, like, Hershey's. <laughs> yeah. Oh! Wait, Hannah, what I are you, you talking like, Oh, oh, I thought you meant, like, the, the chocolate-covered potato chips. That is awesome. Have... You know what? Yeah. You get, you get like,
2: some ruffles, like, wavy ruffles, and then you should melt chocolate chips on top. That sounds
1: really good. I have done that. Really I like might be, sell them. Like you can buy them. Like that already, sounds like, like the perfect
0: combination chocolate. of like sweet and savory. Okay,
1: that's, that's my, my new answer.
0: answer. Okay, continue. I was about to come after you for your chocolate chip things. I'm like, you know, that's not what we're <laughs> asking. Potato but... chip.
1: Okay, yes. Emily Krause. How about you? What's your favorite type? So my
0: favorite type is. I think this is a chip. I don't, Okay, I don't even know what a chip is.
2: I think this is a chip.
0: <laughs> like, Flaming Hot Cheetos?
2: Are those oh, chips?
1: I'd say so.
0: Legally, no, but, like, I... <laughs> My
1: well, favorite
0: I'll illegal chip is
1: <laughs> Flaming
0: Hot Cheetos because I love hot things very much and I am weird about, like, if I'm in pain... It's. It makes the experience even
1: better. Ew, I'm the exact opposite.
0: I love flaming hot Cheetos. I will heat them until this is probably TMI. Uh oh. Until I like start like sweating. I feel like that's a pretty common side effect of flaming hot Cheetos. Oh, but I hate
1: sweating. Is going to be the TMI part of that, but.
0: Okay, um, but I hate the red dust that is my biggest con I don't like how it stains my fingers for like the rest of the day it's Dang a rough, it life.
1: It's a rough <laughs> life I feel bad for you <laughs> Um, I'm going to have to go with the ruffles I just love a okay. good ruffle I actually have a, a solid answer on this one I do love all chips I don't discriminate but my favorite yes. probably is ruffles especially the Um, the sour cream and cheddar ones, those are so good. Wow. That was probably my easiest answer ever. There you go. Well, Well, Emily, Michael, I want to say thank you so, so much. I, as a dog mom appreciated this so much because I love my vet, but I don't ever get just like two hours to ask her all my questions and learn everything about everything when it comes to feeding my dog. So this has been so informational for me, at least. And I know our listeners are going to really like it too. So I appreciate that so much.
2: Definitely. It was, it was a good time.
0: Once again, let us know if there's anything else (laughs) you would like to know. We can bring Emily on and have her services for another episode. And let us know what other topics you'd like to hear about. Or I guess other professions. I don't know any others for like nutrition. But maybe there is something like we do plant nutrition. Let's bring
1: bring Bobby on.
0: Yeah, well, that's a good but, idea. Yeah, that's a really <laughs> well, good idea. The possibilities are endless, but yeah nevertheless, thank you for tuning in for another episode, and we hope to <laughs> since see you guys next week. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what to ask from you all. Eh, <laughs> you listen again. <laughs>
1: There's no call to action for this one. You guys will figure it out. It's fine. Yes. Cool. <laughs> All right. Thanks, guys. See you next week. All right. Bye, everyone. Bye. Thank you so much for tuning in on this episode of The Upbeat Dietitians with your hosts, Emily Krause and Hannah Thompson.
0: We appreciate you all so much for continuing to support us. In order to support us and sustain
1: the success of this podcast, please subscribe and leave a rating and review. If you'd like to provide us feedback for future episodes and guest stars, follow us on Instagram at The Upbeat Dietitians. Lastly, you can show us support by providing a monthly donation using the link at the end of our bio. Once again, thank you so much for listening today and stay tuned next Wednesday for a new episode. Until then, we hope you have a wonderful rest of your week.